Recovery Elevator, episode 139. Yeah, I was finally beginning to see a little more clearly. I was never going to have a a normal relationship with alcohol. They're just never enough. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 37.2 months. On today's podcast, we've got Josh. He's been sober since June 3rd, 2016. He lives in LA and he talks about how one point in his journey to getting sober, he left AA and recovery, determined to find a way to drink normally. Yeah, that sounds about right, Josh. I did the same thing. It's a great interview, so stay tuned. Before we get started with our topic today, I want to let you guys know that registration for the Peru Recovery Elevator Retreat, that registration opens up November 10th, 2017. There's limited spaces for this trip. We've got space for 15 people, and I think this trip is going to fill up fast. If you haven't done Machu Picchu, the Inca Trail, checked out Cusco, the Sacred Valley, Urubamba, it is a bucket list trip of a lifetime. And what better people to do it with other like-minded individuals? It's going to be a blast. Okay, let's get started. I want to talk to you guys today about PAWS. Yeah, that's P-A-W-S and a little clarification on what it is. I've often heard PAWS as post-acute withdrawal symptoms. I've heard it as post-acute withdrawal syndrome. I've also heard it one time in a meeting as PAWS, P-A-U-S-E. Just pause, chill out, let whatever's happened to you in your life just go right through you, and you don't need to react. So, PAWS, post-acute withdrawal symptoms. Those are the symptoms you're going to be feeling within the first 72 hours, first week, first two weeks. These are mostly physical symptoms that you're going to be feeling. Post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Now, that gets a little more complicated. Basically, those are the lingering effects of the damage that we've done to our body. It's our brain correcting itself. And it's those negative, uncomfortable feelings. Now, P-A-U-S-E, that's a button on my remote control, the VCR. I'm not really sure how that applies. I don't think that's really a uh, an official recovery term, but still, it's practical. Just pause and let this stuff go through. Okay, so like I said, there are two stages of withdrawal. The first stage is the acute stage, which usually lasts at most a few weeks. During this stage, you may experience physical withdrawal symptoms, but every person is different. The second stage, like I said, is the post-acute withdrawal syndrome. During this stage, you'll have fewer physical symptoms, but more emotional and psychological withdrawal symptoms. And at this moment, go ahead and cue my addiction, Gary, to start chirping at me in my own voice. <laughs> that drink seems like a good idea, right, Paul? Um, no, Gary. Thank you for the narrative, but I'll pass. So what's basically happening, a post-acute withdrawal occurs because your brain chemistry is gradually returning to normal. Keyword there, gradually. This is a slow process. As your brain improves, the levels of your brain's chemicals fluctuate as they approach the new equilibrium causing post-acute withdrawal symptoms. When we quit drinking, our brain chemicals are totally out of whack. Sometimes our body produces too much of a chemical, too less. It's trying to find that perfect balance, and sometimes that can be painful. Now, some of those post-acute withdrawal syndrome symptoms, again, the symptoms that we're feeling after the physical symptoms dissipate, can be mood swings, anxiety, god damn, that anxiety, that's the worst, irritability, tiredness, variable energy, low enthusiasm, variable concentration, and disturbed sleep. Now, post-acute withdrawal syndrome can feel like a chess match with Bobby Fischer. 
In the beginning, your symptoms will change minute to minute, hour to hour. But later, the further you go, these changes and fluctuations will be less drastic. And as you continue to recover, the good stretches will get longer and the bad stretches will get shorter. Now, here's the good news. Each post-acute withdrawal syndrome episode usually only lasts a few days. Now, you've heard me say in this podcast that a craving has a lifespan of about 20 minutes. Now, a post-acute withdrawal syndrome episode, that's a lot to handle right there, also has a lifespan of about a couple days. When you're feeling that fatigue, the variable energy, the low enthusiasm, and say you're at day 84 and you're like, what the F is going on? Hey, Siri, set a timer for 72 hours. And you know what? It's going to pass just as quickly as it came. And each time you surpass one of these episodes, you're building those sobriety muscles. You're building those coping skills, which are so badly tattered when we first get sober. Now, I want to be real with you guys. Post-acute withdrawal syndrome can last for two years. Now, this is one of the most important things that I want you to forget. It doesn't matter how long it's going to last. And again, it said can last for two years. This is different for everybody. The first two years of my sobriety were actually the easiest two years of my sobriety. The biggest challenges came for me in years two to three. So how do we survive post-acute withdrawal symptoms and post-acute withdrawal syndrome? Well, number one, the most important thing is we need to have a shift in our mindset. We need to look at this as an opportunity and not a sacrifice. With each episode of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, it's a sign that your brain is recovering. Therefore, don't resent these feelings. Another way, go with the flow and get on with it. What that means is do not ruminate in the negative feelings, negative thoughts, and negative emotions. There's no point. Do not sit there and say, hmm, well, I think I ate a lot of gluten last night. Hmm, well, I didn't get a good night's rest. Maybe you did get a good night's rest. Maybe you didn't eat a lot of gluten. It's just what it is. It's important not to dwell, not to ruminate, not to grasp. In short, the further you get in recovery, you're going to have more good days. But those bad days, they're still going to be there. And of course, the usual suspects apply here. Don't drink, exercise, meditate, eat well, connect with other like-minded individuals. But knowledge in this case is power. Simply knowing what these post-acute withdrawal symptom episodes really are, it helps a lot in understanding just how to get through them. And there is comfort knowing that you're not alone. I see this all the time in Cafe RE. I see posts that look like this. Hey guys, it's day 75. I woke up and I'm so irritable and I've got bad anxiety. I'm so close to just saying F it. Now that is not a word for word exact post. That's just something I see all the time. And then a couple days later, I see the same person post. Hey, today is a much better day. The feelings have passed. I'm back on it. So don't beat yourself up. Be kind with yourself. These feelings are going to come. That's why it's called a syndrome. It's a pretty serious word. But then again, it's not really a syndrome. There's nothing wrong with you. Your brain and body is just resetting itself. And this can take time. Okay. And before we hear from Josh, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, 
I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Josh, how are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Josh, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? My last drink was on June 2nd, 2016. Nice. So you're you're over 14 months, maybe 15 months now, right? Yeah. Congratulations. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. Do you have a family? And you know, what do you like to do for fun, Josh? Well, I am from Phoenix, Arizona originally. I live in LA now. I'm a digital content producer, 36 years old, single, and I really like hiking and exploring uh, with my four-year-old miniature golden retriever, Diego. Awesome. And yeah, you, uh, you're 36. You've been 36 for about 12 hours now, so happy birthday, Josh. Today's your birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thank what you do you have planned uh, for today on your birthday? What do you and Diego have planned? <laughs> this is actually the first thing putting this interview, but I, you know, I took the day off work. I just, I'm going to have lunch with a couple of friends, maybe run some errands, go to the dog park, just try to have a relaxing day. Nice. That sounds awesome. Yeah. And let, let's jump into the podcast title recovery elevator. Talk to me about your elevator. When did you first decide to quit drinking? Oh, I decided that many times. It would usually only be for a matter of days or hours. Uh, you know, back in 2013, I had an incident where I had been on a cruise that was just kind of a week-long blackout. I had come back from that and was house-sitting for a friend the next weekend, planned to have a completely productive few days of doing some writing and doing some laundry and I wound up just drinking his entire liquor cabinet hmm. just because it was there. Sure. And, you know, not to skip ahead, but that, that was one of many, many oh shit moments of I, I cannot control this at all. And that, that took me to the my first voluntary AA meeting. I had been to AA meetings court ordered before that. Gotcha. And, and listeners, Josh sent me an email on August 2nd. And in that email, there's a couple things that I would like to cover. One of them is in 2012-13, you said you left AA in recovery, determined to find a way to drink normally. And how did that go? <laughs> you know, it didn't it didn't go so well. Once once you've been introduced to recovery and then you go back out, it, it's tough because you can't really enjoy drinking the way that you were, and you're really starting to see things a little more clearly. So for me. Trying to control my drinking involves, you know, all, all the stuff we talk about, you know, only drinking wine and beer, only drinking after a certain time, only drinking on the weekends. You know, I I was taking Wellbutrin for a while and I was convinced that, that was helping me with, that I wasn't feeling quite feeling the effects of alcohol and that was helping me drink a little more responsibly. You know, just really a variety of things that, I don't know, we're, we're, I thought were keeping the demons at bay for a little bit while I was out. Sure. And during that same time, you know, before I hit the record button, you mentioned a, a couple times during that, that period of time, you said to yourself, you know, we're not even to try it. We're not even to try to get sober because alcohol at this moment in my life is the only thing giving me relief. Talk to me a little bit about that time. Yeah. I mean, they were just, I just, I, I felt that, that strongly, you know, being, being caught in sort of the middle there where I had gone into the rooms of AA a little bit, hadn't, 
hadn't liked it. And just I, I just wanted to learn how to drink responsibly at that point. So I felt like, okay, I did my research in that, and now I've gone back out sort of into the field, and you know, I'm going to do some more damage. You know, to me, it just felt like, God, there are all these people with more serious problems, you know, drug problems and, and other things. I'm just an alcoholic, you know, and it's a social lubricant. It's something that's just part of the fabric of our culture. You know, living in L.A. and working in entertainment, and, you know, just being a, a younger guy, it just felt like it's my right to drink. And, and drinking is the only thing that really makes me feel better. So are you really telling me that it's the problem but yet also the solution is, is giving up sort of this, this, this one sense of relief that I have. It just, it seems really unfair to me. And Josh, I don't want to single you out with those two parts in the email that you sent me. I also tried several ways to drink normally. And, you know, even after I knew that I had a drinking problem, someone who was an alcoholic, I still tried to find ways to drink normally. And also during the period after I went to A, and then I said the same thing that you did, is like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give this up. I, this is the only thing that's working for me at this moment. So I've gone through all of that stuff, and it's exhausting. And, you know, and, and so what do you think was the catalyst, the impetus to springboard you forward in sobriety starting on June 3rd, 2016? What was different around that time? You know, there were, there were a few things that led up to that, and I'll just kind of quickly gloss over them in sort of the year before that. It certainly wasn't an overnight, oh, I'm going to come back, you know, I'm going to come back to recovery, I'm ready to do this. You know, and that's what I would encourage everyone to sort of, sort of take from this. Is, it's not a one-day thing. So for me, it was, you know, flash forward to the summer of 2015. It was the worst summer of my life. I had almost been fired from my job. I had showed up drunk to work. And I had been drinking at work for years. And I had been promoted a couple times during this period. I had really kind of <laughs> hidden it well. But I had one day where I didn't quite hide it so well, and someone reported me to HR, and my company decided to keep me, just a little flap on the wrist. But that summer, my, my older brother came to stay with me for a couple months, and I was living in a studio apartment at the time, and I just felt like, oh my God, I, I can't drink at work anymore, and I can't drink at home because we'd had some, we'd had some issues before he was aware of my, of my alcoholism stuff. So, mm -hmm. You know, that kind of drove me faster, even even faster, despite everything that I had been through, you know, into some sort of recovery. And then, you know, I, I, I want to mention that that fall, October 15th, 2015, my cousin Sam killed himself. And he had no substance abuse problems, just severely depressed. And he was someone who had met the love of his life, had just graduated from law school, had taken the California bar. He had gone off his psychiatric medications. Wow. And he was trying to live. Oh, I appreciate it, Paul. You know, I just, I, I mentioned it because I had only reconnected with him a few years before. And our, our fathers had been estranged and we had reconnected through Facebook later in life. And it was becoming a really meaningful relationship to me. But I didn't know that he was struggling like that. And I wish... There was something I could have done to help him, but what what I really took from from his passing was that he just wanted the pain to stop, and that's that's what I wanted. That's why I was drinking that way. I mean, I was just in so much pain. the The wheel started to turn a little more quickly, so I wound up adopting my dog about six weeks after he passed, and I saw Diego as my bridge to getting sober, and I knew it was not going to be 
still not an overnight thing for me. But within a couple months of having Diego, my life started to just feel a little more different. I was just, even if I was taking a roadie out with me on walks or to the dog park, I felt more involved in life. And I started to see my reflection in his eyes. And I just wasn't the person that I wanted to be. I drove intoxicated with him a couple times and I was really furious with myself and started reaching out to friends I had known from recovery, some, friends, some other people I just collected in my life for a while who I knew had a few years of sobriety under their belt. And those conversations, even before I was ready to walk back into an AA room, just helped me more than I can even tell you. Just talking to one other person, you know, got me closer and closer. I got to a point where I got 30 days. I was working with a sponsor. I had gone to a friend's wedding. I had really, I really, really wanted it. And then I had my last relapse. It was Memorial Day weekend of 2016. I just thought I was okay to go hang out with some friends in Palm Springs by a pool, brought Diego with me, just thought I'll stay here for an hour. I'll be fine. But I was the only person not drinking. Mm -hmm. And I only had, I only had 33 days of sobriety, the most that I had ever had in my adult life at that point. And, you know, I thought that this, this disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful. You know, I just, all I could think was I have to find a way to make this work. And I didn't want to call anyone. I, you know, this was before I discovered uh, Recovery Elevator. I just, you know, I, I drank and I drank for about five days and I was just pretty miserable again. And at that point, I signed up for an outpatient and, you know, and that's, that's, that took me to June 3rd and, and I have been sober ever since. And I can definitely relate to you with the summer of 2015. My summer of 2014 was just hideous. It was the worst summer, worst, uh, you know, four or five month stretch of my entire life. But it was that pain which forced me to change and get sober. And it was during that stretch that you also mentioned in your email that you got two DUIs. Was that that time as well? Uh, you know, the first DUI was in 2006 and the second was in 2011. The, the second one second one was super complicated it was in arizona there was mandatory mandatory jail time i was working overtime trying to figure out how am i going to be able to do 45 days of jail without taking the time off work or potentially going back to arizona you know i, I found it, it's amazing the lengths we go to <laughs> how I, how how can i hide this from my employer 45 days in jail <laughs> exactly well i found you know, I found a work release program where I was going to work at a jail in sort of South Central LA, and I was, you know, had to get up in the morning and 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 go down there and put on the orange jumpsuit and you know scrub scrub jail cells. And all I could think, you know, all I could think while I was working those sessions, this was back in 2011, was I can't wait to get out and drink. And you know, I saw I saw that that was problematic, but. You know, it just it just felt like that's again that's that's the only thing that's gonna make the only gonna thing that's gonna make us feel better. Yeah, and let's talk about Diego for a second. You mentioned that you could see your reflection in his eyes that things changed when you adopted him. Uh, you know, a little bit of time after your cousin your cousin committed suicide. Why do you think that was? What do I think? things started to change when yeah and i'm trying to make a link with diego here and you 
and I'll just I'll just go first. Something similar happened when I with Ben. Now I want to be clear. I don't recommend you getting a, or anybody getting a puppy or a kitten or a pet pig or anything if they're trying to get sober and nothing else is seeming to work because yeah. I don't think that'll solve the problem. But same thing with me. It allowed me to get outside of myself. We are a selfish lot, and everything was about me, 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 me. But when I had my lovely standard poodle Ben. It wasn't all about me, and, and same thing with you. I also went to the to the dog park with roadies, and I remember mixing tequila and squirt in the parking lot and feeling like a piece of shit, but I was still <laughs> getting out and being active, and it wasn't all about me. And did you experience the same things with Diego? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I agree with you. I I, I feel like I I sort of did it in the, the wrong order, but it worked out. It took me out. Of, yeah, it took me out of myself. You know, meeting people on the street or at the dog park and talking to them about their dogs and just, you know, throwing myself and say, okay, what's, what's going to make Diego happy today? I want to take him for a hike. I want to take him outside. I want to just spend this nice, quiet downtime together. And I feel like it just really brought my blood pressure down, I think, and, and just sort of calmed me in those early days, weeks, and months of, I kept myself busy early in sobriety of, you know, I had an, you know, I had an outpatient I was going to, I was going to AA meetings, just, you know, there was fellowship and, and keeping busy with, with work and other parts of my life, but just having Diego at home with me and spending all that, that quiet time with him, uh, it, it really just helped me more than I could ever, ever explain. I wasn't, I wasn't sitting at home thinking like, God, this sucks or I'm, I, I, I really wish I had a drink or, or what am I going to do now? Like I just, I just chilled with him and, and it really just, it really just helped so much. Yeah. There's a word we hear often in recovery and especially in the rooms of 12 step programs and that service little did I know, but I was being of service to Ben. Like you said, you know, what can <laughs> I do for you today, Diego? What can I do for you today, Ben? There was days yeah. when I was struggling in the muck of it in 2014 when I probably would have slept until two, three or 4 PM. But I look at Ben sitting patiently, just waiting for me to get up I'm like all right god dang it i will get up and feed you ben and i was of service to him a little did i know it and i don't want to touch up about something you said earlier when you were in your studio apartment you couldn't drink at work and you couldn't drink at home my brother was incremental to me getting sober he held me accountable as soon as he was in the loop of what was going on um, i don't know if i would have gotten sober without my brother mark um, tell me about that with you just mentioned your brother and you said you couldn't drink at home was that because he knew it was going on and, and he didn't want you to drink? Tell me more about that. You know, I was I was self-conscious. There, a, a year before that living arrangement, there had been a going-away party for my brother. Uh, he was had lived in L.A. for a long time and, and was moving to Austin. And we were having dinner at my parents' house. And I was probably, I was a couple hours late to the dinner. And... I wasn't drinking. I was working on. I was working on a going away gift for him, and he was really he was really upset. He just wanted me there at that specific time. We we kind of had a, a blowout fight about it when I showed up that night, and I wound up staying the night. We were having the whole sort of weekend together at my parents' house, and the next morning I went to a kinko so that I could finish this sort of arts and crafts project that was a going away gift for him, and I was feeling really shitty about what had happened about him getting mad at me so i picked up a bottle of vodka and <laughs> brought it you know I, I think i drank about half of it when i got back to my parents house in secret and i was drunk when we were hanging out later that afternoon and my family had never really seen that side of me 
my parents are daily wine drinkers. There was always alcohol around. So anyway, that had turned into another, just a, a really ugly afternoon and night. So I just, I had that feeling like I need to be on good behavior when he's staying with me. We had an insult. I'll tell you another quick story. My brother and I were, the, the summer that my brother was living with me, there was a night we were supposed to meet for dinner. And Sunday, fun day, I, beforehand, I wound up going out. I had been drinking before that, but pool. And I never made it to where we were supposed to meet for dinner. My brother came back and found me passed out in the hallway in front of my apartment. And he took video of it. I even, I watched, I watched it every couple months. I watched it last night. Maybe I'll post, maybe I'll post it on Cafe. Yeah, um, I, I encourage you it, to do so. That stuff is great sobriety fuel. So there was just, you know, there was just, there was a lot in the mix there. My brother really cares about me, uh, was concerned about me, didn't know what to do. You know, that night that he found me, he he took me in, he put me to bed, he, he wrote me a note and left it on top of me and just said, I love you. Yeah. So still, family, still repairing, yeah. still repairing those relationships, but, uh, you know, that was part of the story. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to jump oh. forward too far, but what is your relationship with your brother like today? You know, we're we're both still figuring things out. We're both fighting some demons, I think. You know, we we don't live in the same city, and we can't talk sporadically. But I owe him some amends, and I'm hoping that you know, come Thanksgiving and in the future, we can be closer again. Sure. Let's back it up a little bit. Your relapse was a part of my story. In fact, I don't know too many people that you know they they just quit drinking and that was it and that was their sobriety date. Sure, that is a possibility. But if you're listening, don't beat yourself up if relapse is a part of your story. Relapse is a part of a huge part of my story. And it sounds like with 33 days of sobriety, you went to an innocuous seeming pool party in Palm Springs, or maybe not pool party, but hanging out with your friends by a pool in Diego and you're the only one not drinking. Those are tough moments in early sobriety. And you drank and then you drank for five days straight. Um, you know, but you mentioned in when you're telling that story that you really, really wanted it. And that's what I want to focus on right now. Talk to me about really, really wanting it. Yeah, I mean, going into that, my other my other times in sobriety, it had just been, I want to get a handle on my drinking. I want to learn how to drink responsibly. Yeah, everyone else in these rooms, everyone else here is accumulating, you know, weeks, months, and years. I just, I just want a little time away, and I want to learn how, how to drink like the grown-up. You know, but this time I was different. You know, this time I had Diego. This time my cousin had passed, and I... You know, I was finally beginning to see a little more clearly I was never going to have a, relation, a normal relationship with alcohol. They're just never enough. You know, you could, you could give me, you know, what's, what's that saying? One drink's too many and a thousand's not enough. Nailed it. I mean, it's just the way it had always been. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't fool myself anymore. You know, just being sober was, was the prize that I wanted. And, you know, that, that Palm Springs moment of, all of a sudden it shifted back. Uh, you know, I, I haven't felt that way since, but I never want to feel that way again. It's the worst feeling in the world of I have to drink. It's more important than anything. You know, you it, it, your mind just starts to cycle. I just thought like, well, maybe I can keep my sobriety and I just drink one day a month. So these <laughs> silly, silly notions. <laughs> yeah. I have that same feeling uh, in early sobriety. I was like, well, maybe I'll just drink once a year at my fantasy football draft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a exactly. dumpster fire and fast. 
you know, a, a lot of the listeners, I don't want to uh, profile anybody, but a lot of the listeners who are listening, many of them have not been to an AA meeting. They've not been to rehab. They've not been to inpatient, outpatient. Talk to me a little bit about uh, inpatient treatment and what that looked like for you. Okay. Well, I, I, so I, did, you went to outpatient, you went to outpatient. Yeah. Yeah. I went to an outpatient briefly that I dropped out of in 2014. I was still drinking during it. I wouldn't drink on the days that I went, but I, I didn't feel connected to the group. My insurance was paying for it. It really was not a good experience because I wasn't putting anything into it and I wasn't being honest. You know, when I was finally ready in 2016, it was a really good experience. I, you know, I went six days a week for the first month. It was something for me to do after I got off work. It was something for me to do on a Saturday morning. I have friends that I made in there that I'm still friends with today. You know, it was nice to be in that same sort of leg of the journey as other people to be able to talk about coping mechanisms and just sort of real life examples of, you know, what do you do when, when you've, you've had a bad day or do you want to celebrate something? You know, how do you do that? What are your plans for the holiday weekend? You know, a lot of things that, a lot of things that, that you focus on, we talk about them here. Yeah, you know, it's just, they were really good, real life things that you don't really talk about and, and crosstalk that you don't get out of AA meetings. Sure. So what was a tool or strategy that you learned in outpatient that you've utilized in the past 14, 15 months? You know, I just, I, employing meditation and sort of just taking, even if, even if you feel like you're not meditating, right? I just feel like even if, if I feel really anxious and I just take five minutes where I don't have to do anything and I put my phone away and I just sort of remind myself that everything's going to be okay, just sort of that delaying tactic made cravings go away pretty quickly in the beginning and just generally calm me down. And besides outpatient, how did you do it? How did you first navigate, which can be tumultuous for many, including myself, how did you navigate those first you know, 30 days, first week, first month of sobriety? How did you do it? You know, the, the, big thing, the big thing for me is staying connected. You know, I was realizing I, I can't say it enough, and, I, and you say it all the time. And it, it, I, I say it to other people. You, know, you cannot do this alone. This is such a lonely disease. You know, if you try to do this, in a vacuum, in isolation, you're, you're making it a lot more difficult for yourself and you're probably setting yourself up for failure. So the one, the one consistent thing has just been staying connected, texting people, calling people, taking people's calls, you know, and it was nine months in that I found recovery elevator podcasts and I was changing jobs and I had a couple weeks off and it was so nice. I just, I, I'd listened to some recovery podcasts and hadn't quite responded to them. And I just, you know, I, I, I think you have a gift for this. I, I, you have some really great people in the community and people that, you know, I eventually joined the community and gotten to know some people's stories and gotten to know some people. And it's just been such a nice, a nice supplement. And it, you know, it goes hand in hand with, with not doing this alone. Well, thank you for the compliment. And thanks for listening to the podcast. That means a lot. And I just need to echo what you said pretty much on every episode of the podcast is, is that strategy and, and that resource is the community. You cannot do this alone. This disease will eventually put you in a foxhole by yourself. And it did for myself many times. And I know you, you commented on it as well as this is a disease of isolation and it's a painful isolation where our addiction will get at us in our own voices and tell us that we can do it on our own, but that's just not the case. 
Now, in 14, 15 months of sobriety, has your addiction crept up on you in your own voice and said, hey, Josh, look, we've got two, three, four, five, six months of sobriety. Let's let's have a drink. Things are going to be different this time. Yeah, you know, not not exactly in that voice, but it, <laughs> you know, it gets, gets a little, gets kind of sneaky. You know, it has me, my, my addiction, I don't, I don't have a name for him yet, but uh, my addiction has me, you know, I will occasionally, you know, scroll down the vodka aisle just to see what's on sale. Uh, <laughs> there's not really a reason for it, but, you know, I guess another thing too is like, I'll go into Seven Eleven and I'll just, you know, I'll be going for like kombucha or Diet Coke or something. And I, you know, my, my mind goes to a quick place of just like quick audit. Wait, is there, is there some alcohol that I'm allowed to drink? Is there some like new product or something that's a certain percentage? And it's just that <laughs> quick blip of like, well, no, that's, that's, that's silly. I can't do that. Let's, let's move on. So I guess that's kind of how my addiction comes out right now. And Josh, I don't think that's going to change. I've heard that behavior from a lot of people, including myself. In fact, I just got back from a wedding down in New Orleans, and the wedding was just a couple blocks away from Bourbon Street. And I wanted to see this cog in motion that I've heard so much about. So I left probably 10 p.m., walked over to Bourbon Street, and I'd be lying to you if I if I said there wasn't a quick desire, a quick thought, an impulse of, you know what, like I, I can do this. This is this is, yeah, I've been sober for a little bit of time now, but that was, we're talking a fraction of a second, you know, two, three seconds. And then I followed that drink and then I witnessed it for what it really was. The street smells like shit. It's there. There's puke everywhere. (laughs) There's trash everywhere. There's drunk people everywhere. And what it is, drinking is an opportunity. It's not a sacrifice. I, I did not walk away from that street thinking I left anything out, right? Or I was missing out on anything. I walked back to that wedding feeling, I don't want to say sorry for the people on Bourbon Street, but that's how I felt. Now, it's not full of alcoholics, Bourbon Street, but yeah, it just it felt good not to be partaking in that. You know, and, and when you get cravings, what do you, what do, you do? You know, I, I mean, like you said, playing playing the tape definitely helps. You know, because it play it, you play it through. You play it accurately enough. You know, you know that what what might feel good for a couple of minutes, you know, is is not going to lead you to a good place. You know, I, I play the tape of of that Palm Springs weekend. I'm, I'm glad I had that because you know what happened was that afternoon that I finally gave in. Nothing crazy happened that night. You know, I had a few drinks and I wound up staying over that night. Diego played with the other dogs at the house and I crashed on the couch. But what happened the next morning, you know, I played through that tape further, was that I didn't have a bed to sleep in. I, got, I was the first one to get up in the house. I started cleaning up. I started cleaning up around the pool, and I started drinking, you know, mm-hmm. because it was sitting out on the counter. And it was, it started off fun. You know, the dogs are playing, and I'm cleaning up. I'm trying to, do, trying to be of service. But there was so much open alcohol on the counter that I went, I just, I drank so much, and that's that's the only way I want to drink. And I wound up driving kind of, kind of drunk back to LA. So, you know, I play that tape out. I know it's, it's not going to take me to a good place. And where are you at these days with 12 step programs? You mentioned in 2012, 2013, you gave it a shot. Do you participate in 12 step programs? Do you go to AA meetings? I do. I do. I was, I was kind of a, I was pretty anti-AA for a long time, and I can't tell you I, – I, I don't embrace everything about it, but what I, what I get out of it and what I 
you know, what I really admire is it's organized so well. You know, there are, you know, small towns and big cities all around the world. It's everywhere. These meetings are happening, whether you like it or not. There's someone there to make the coffee. You know, there, there's that core connection to people there if you want it. And I go to, I was going to five or six meetings a week in my first year. You know, it was a way to stay connected and, and something to do. I probably go to two or three meetings a week now. I have a meeting where I'm the secretary and, you know, I like, I like picking speakers and, you know, I, I definitely get something out of it. So I, I'm going to continue with it. It's, it's not, it's not everything to me. I, I am working steps. I was working with the sponsor. I did let him go. Uh, I'm looking for another sponsor. We just both, I kind of both wanted different things, but you know, again, I, I believe in the program. I think people sort of take some things a little too literally in there. I've had some issues with what is my higher power and the like, but all in all, I, I think it's a, a positive goal. It's not for everyone. Sure. But you just mentioned, take what you want, leave the rest. That's a huge yeah. piece of advice for a lot of people. And once I fully embraced that, yeah, yeah, shit, it looked differently to me. But let's talk about the higher power thing. You said, you know, you had, you had difficulty with higher power, you and just about everybody else. How did that look for you? And how did you overcome that? Yeah, I, you know, I was, I was raised Jewish. And right after my bar mitzvah, my parents told me that they were atheists. We weren't going to belong to the temple anymore. So I, you know, as a teenager going into my 20s, I really questioned, am I agnostic? Am I atheist? Does this matter? What does this mean? And then how, did, you know, how does that fit? Is, is this really the solution to my recovery? So, you know, to me, it's still what it is for so many other people. Uh, you know, a higher power for me is just a power greater than myself. It's, it's at least one other person that I connect with, the, the larger group, in a sense, that I, I don't have anymore. Any more answers than that? You know, the idea of turning something over still seems silly to me sometimes, but I, I do admit that I can be powerless over alcohol. So I am not going to try to have control over that anymore. And, you know, that is a power that's bigger than me. And, you know, the, the universe and, and all the energy that flows through it, I, I don't know why we're here. I don't know what we're doing. Sometimes I lay awake at night trying to figure that out. It's probably pretty fruitless. But I'm just trying to be more at peace with that and, and not need to, to have the answers or, or, or really control that. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, it does. You said it twice there. You don't need to have the answers. That's the good news about this is even with the Recovery Podcast as a host, I don't have all the answers. And it feels good to know that I don't have to have all the answers. And, Josh, we have reached the rapid-fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right, number one, Josh, what was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, too many to choose from. God, this was back in 2005. I, my roommate and I at the time had a tandem parking space, and he usually left for work before I did, and it was you know, a random weekday morning. He woke me up, and he said, where's my car? And I said, oh, no. So we hopped in my car, <laughs> drove around the neighborhood, driving around, and just getting the sinking feeling that I had something to do with his car not being where it was. He thought maybe he had forgotten and parked it on the street. So it turns out that I had gone out with some friends, gotten dropped off. I was drunk. I must have, I think I was trying to take his car to Jack in the Box, but I, I, I blacked out in the middle of trying to move it and had left it in the one-way driveway. Someone had had it towed. So I had to take him to the tow yard, of course, 
paid to get his car out. And I remember he said to me, you know, he was a super nice guy and more understanding than he should have. But he said, how do I know, how do I make sure this isn't going to happen again? And I, you know, and that was long before I ever started trying to get sober. I said, I wouldn't leave your keys out on the kitchen counter. Yeah, man, that sounds like a movie with Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> um, yeah. Next question. We've all heard of that aha moment. Do you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking? Yeah. Again, you know, too, too many to mention. You know, one being, I had talked about at one point, being at my friend's house and drinking his entire liquor collection, you know, in, instead of just having a productive, uneventful couple days. And I guess another, I mean, another one would be uh, when I had almost been fired from work, I told myself I wasn't going to drink to work anymore. And six weeks later, I was drinking at work again. You know, I was like, there, there's just, there's no controlling this. And Josh, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? You know, my, my plan is just to keep doing what works, to, to stay connected, to not have a single day go, go by that I don't at least reach out to one other person or, or, or let someone reach out to me. You know, I just... I, I count my days every day. I got 480 days. You know, I, I, I take pride in, in each day. Each day is a milestone. So I'm just going to keep doing what's working. And what's your go-to resource, your favorite resource in recovery with 15 months of sobriety? Probably Diego. <laughs> Diego is my constant. Diego's, Diego's there. Diego's my, my, my tool. I second that with my dog, Vanna, here loud and clear. And in regards to sobriety, Josh, what's the best advice you've ever received? So there's a there's an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, and I have this on a plaque right by my front door. I just really, really speaks to me. So quote is, it's never too late to be whoever you want to be. I hope you live a life you're proud of. And if you find that you're not, I hope you have the strength to start over. I think we have the, I mean, we have, we have the ability to start over every day. So I try to, I try to follow that. I love it. And before we depart, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early sobriety? We're thinking about taking this journey into sobriety. I, I would say this has to be the most important thing in your life. You know, and that might, that might sound daunting, but it didn't, it didn't work for me until that was the case. You know, it, for me a long time, it was, well, I'm, I'm going to stay sober, but I might drink at this birthday party in three weeks, you know, and it's, you know, and I, when I thought about that last relapse in Palm Springs that weekend, I, I should have been treating my sobriety just with, with kid gloves at that point, you know, that I shouldn't have been putting myself in a situation like that. So, you know, something that really helped me I would put out there as, as advice. This final time, I just, again, putting it before anything, I think I, I think I had about four months and I had to go to a work dinner that was, there was, I knew there was going to be free flowing cocktails throughout the whole meal. It was like a five hour affair. And I took, I took my then boss's assistant aside and I had known her for years and I just, I laid it out for her. I was honest and I said, I'm four months sober and I'm a little apprehensive. I am going to come to the dinner, but I might need to just take off at some point or I might need to just come to you and, and say, Hey, I, I, I don't feel great. So just having that one person to confide in, putting that before anything, that, that really did the trick for me. I think that is so cool with four months of sobriety that you, you pulled your boss's assistant inside and, be, and was honest and created accountability with that. And sorry, Diego, sorry, Poodle Ben. 
our sobriety comes first and you guys will understand because <laughs> if we lose our sobriety no no more walks and fun stuff ben it's just, it's going to be basically out to the bathroom and back that's it so and before we depart yeah. give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line uh, you might be an alcoholic if you're out with friends at a bar and you go to the bathroom but you stop at the bar to do a shot by yourself before you come back out to the table to resume drinking. <laughs> Check had done that a couple of times and I was caught once doing it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Happy birthday, 36th birthday. That's awesome. We got to do this interview on your birthday. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks for everything. Yeah, thank you, Josh. I got a message from Megan and she was the gal who I interviewed about four to five episodes ago. It was a powerful interview. I was talking about the anxiety that I just couldn't bear when I was done with the binge and she was just about to start feeling those emotions. I mean, she had like half a day, a quarter of a day of sobriety when we did the interview, but I heard from her and she said she's on day four and she's feeling really good. So nice job, Megan. Keep kicking ass in recovery and keep us updated. I want to close out with something that a listener emailed me. It says, if you're not sure you have a drinking problem, you probably do. Because people without drinking problems don't think about alcohol ever. They measure their alcohol like you measure your corn on the cob. They never count days between corn on the cob. They never plan their day around corn on the cob. They never go out at 11 p.m. to get more corn on the cob. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.